Working Class Audio is brought to you by Roswell Pro Audio, Gearsluts.com, The License Lab, Audio-Technica, and Universal Audio. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 190. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 190 you're listening to. My guest today is David Cook. David and I met about three or four years ago at Winternam in Anaheim. And David at the time was a fresh transplant from Columbia, South Carolina, where he and his wife decided that they would pack up their two kids, their two very young children, and sell their house and move out to Los Angeles so David could pursue more of a serious audio career. In Columbia, he had worked primarily in recording studios, and he had dipped his toes a little bit in the world of location sound with production companies that had come to work in South Carolina. Well, when he got to Los Angeles, he made a bit of a career change and really dove feet first into the world of location sound. And since then, I've followed his career and kept in touch with him and seen him really do quite well there in Los Angeles. He's worked with companies like Comedy Central, NBC, Hulu, Netflix, HBO, Chevy, uh, Nickelodeon, Best Buy, Pepsi. He's also managed to continue some music production work from time to time. That's allowed him to do some work with uh, folks like Tom Morello, of course, of Rage Against the Machine, doing work for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And he's also uh, kept his toes in the world of live sound engineering, mixing records and uh, audio post as well. So David Cook coming up here on the Working Class Audio podcast. Oh man, summer's coming to an end. And uh, yeah, <laughs> get gearing up for uh, the school year to start and for the kids to get back into their routines. But one more trip in store, going to head down to New Mexico and uh, see some friends, uh, do some work with a band I'm doing some work with there. And uh I get to see my my friend, uh, former WCA guest Emmett Brooks. If you haven't checked out Emmett, you should. He's a uh, he's a great dude, and uh, he's been at this for a long time, and he's got some great stories to tell. Yeah, Emmett Brooks. He is uh, WCA uh, number eighty six. If you want to check out his interview. So um, the one thing that I didn't get to yet this summer, and I'm going to have to do this when I get back from New Mexico, but. Uh, I didn't do my summertime annual purge. And this is a thing I do every summer where I go through all my paperwork, I digitize with a set of tools that allows me to make sure I keep and uh, can access everything that is important on paper that I don't want to keep on paper anymore. Uh, I also go through all my gear and I figure out, you know, what am I using, what am I not using, and uh, I sell it. Yeah, get rid of it. Move on to new stuff, yeah. And uh, just do a general spring cleaning in the summertime. Summertime clean and purge, so to speak. So you should consider doing that if uh, maybe you're sitting in a studio that is um, one of your favorite places to be in, but it's a little overcrowded with paperwork and uh, gear that you're not using. Um, I still have a pair of speakers over here on the floor that I'm staring at. I'm thinking, I got to get on that. I got to get rid of those. It's just not worth holding on to anymore because I'm just not using them. So uh, yeah, consider doing that. So take the time to digitize all those documents and uh, 
get rid of gear you're not using and uh, anything else yeah it's a good time to just like clear the head clear the spaces around you a clean space I have to admit and I'm not a super you know nitpicky clean person but a clean space really really helps my head and I'm, I'm sure it'll help yours too now if you're a hoarder try something new don't end up on one of those reality TV shows don't be a gear hoarder that would be awful that would really make us all look like I don't know what it would make us look like can you imagine that reality show with pro audio hoarders oh there's a good idea As you know, Universal Audio is a sponsor of the Working Class Audio Podcast. They help make the show possible. And I want to encourage you to stop on buyouaudio.com and pay them a visit. You know, truthfully, I use their products every single day that I do any kind of audio work. Uh, I'm sitting here in front of an Apollo 8P, running the show through that, recording through that, and, you know, supported, of course, by some uh, DSP products like the UAD2 satellite boxes. So, uh, yeah, one of my favorite companies. Pay them a visit at uaudio.com. Also, stop on by and pay a visit to gearsluts.com to the subforum called Audio Life. Working Class Audio sponsors that subforum, and it's a great place if you're tired of the chit chat about gear, which I get. And if not, you know, there are other parts of Gear Sluts that you should check out. And uh, if you're buying something or selling something, check out the Gear Sluts Classified. Uh, that's a great resource. So, uh, yeah, that's it. Let's get down to it. Let's have a conversation with my friend David Cook here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Well, welcome to the podcast, David. Thanks for inviting me, man. It's a, it's a real honor to be here. I'm glad that you're here with me. We met several years ago at NAM. Yeah. And that was at the awesome. time you had approached me and you came up, you're like, I'm a fan of your podcast. And we sat and we chatted and you told me about coming to Los Angeles. And a bit of your journey and a little bit about where you were at at the time. Yeah. Since then, we've stayed in touch on Facebook. You've come up to the Bay Area for a gig from Los Angeles, and you stopped by my house. We went to lunch. Yeah. From what I've observed over this time period since you arrived in Los Angeles, you've really entrenched yourself in the audio community there, and you continue to really grow right before my eyes yeah. in terms of career. So we will go back and talk about your earlier days, but I really would love to start for the audience with that moment of coming to Los Angeles. Tell me about the decisions leading up yeah. to that, and then the journey from there forward. I moved out to technically Huntington Beach, which is in Orange County. This is coming from South Carolina more than three years ago now, but not quite four. I moved out here because, you know, I've always wanted to move out to LA and, and had almost done so a couple times before and just never worked out. My wife and I, we had two kids, sold our house, packed up a truck and moved out. And there were zero prospects. We had no idea what was going to happen. I mean, I did come out here a couple of times before and and met with some people that I knew that were working and were doing well. And so they, they were very encouraging. I said, yeah, man, just come out and see what happens. So I did. I think one of the cool things about LA is you really never know who you're going to meet. You never know who you're going to run into or work with and where that might lead. To my surprise, I found that I was making a lot of connections in film and television. Now, when I got here, I mean, I was just hustling everywhere. I called all my studio contacts. I called all my video contacts. I called all my live production 
AV contacts. And I was just calling everyone I knew and everyone they knew. Anybody that would take a call or an email or would go to coffee or whatever, I was hitting them up. I got a lot of positive responses from kind of everyone. But what I found is that in the production sound community, for people that don't know, production sound is like a location sound for film and television. So when they're producing the the content on the front end, they call it production sound. You know, on the back end, it's called post-production sound because it's after they've produced it, you know, or they're after they've shot it. So what I found is that that group of production sound mixers was actually a very tight-knit group. They're very open about networking and talking to other mixers and helping people get work and finding work and that sort of thing. So so I hit it off really well with a bunch of production sound mixers. Part of that was because I have experience in that field. And so it wasn't like I'm just out of the blue going, hey, film and television sounds cool. Like I had actually already uh, on the East Coast been doing that kind of work. So it was a, a crazy transition work-wise, you know, because working in the studio, you're the important guy. Everyone wants to know what you think, how you think it sounds. And when you're on set, sound is a, is in the way. They don't want to see a microphone. They don't want to know that you're you're working. Like they they want you to be invisible. Anyone that has ever tried to mic something, mic placement's crucial. Imagine someone coming into a studio and looking at the way you've mic'd the drum set and you've dealt with phase and you've dealt with, you know, placement and all these sort of things. And someone comes in and goes, you know, I just don't like the way that looks. Do you think you could just move it, you know, somewhere else, like the other room? We just don't even want to see it, you know, like that would just ruin the whole the whole session almost that would just kill the vibe, you know, it is a different world jumping into that. So it was intimidating, you know, it's a different, different equipment that you have to own, different workflow, different hierarchy of, you know, who, who's in charge and who's important, (laughs) who thinks they're important. Having to navigate that was a big challenge trying to figure out who do you talk to to get work? Who do you talk to when you have a problem on set? Who do you talk to to find out about money? But I was fitting in. I was catching on really quickly and developing relationships really quickly in that in that area. And back east when I was doing mostly music, either in a studio or in a live setting, and doing occasionally doing sound for television and film, it, the complete opposite happened out here. You know, I found myself doing... 80, 90% production sound and 20% studio and live work. Where were you in South Carolina? I was in Columbia, which is the capital. Between Columbia and Los Angeles, were there cultural differences in the production sound gigs themselves? Most of my clients were LA-based production companies. So they were coming from LA to South Carolina and they were trying to hire local. I think the assumption is that they're going to find a local boy and dupe him. You know, they're going to get him to do things that someone in LA would never do, or they'd get away with for a lot, a lot more. less. Yeah, for a lot less. And so I'll paint a picture. So, you know, in South Carolina, you know, I had my studio and, you know, I'd get whatever rate I could get for some band to come and, you know, record their demo. And then I'd get a production company out of LA coming out and say, can you record dialogue, one or two microphones? half the day for twice the money. And I'm just like, that's amazing. Of course I can. And then I moved to LA and I talked to the same company. We're having a conversation and this, the producer made a comment and he said, oh yeah, make sure we get this guy on our call list because you know he's great and it's hard to find good sound people. And I was just like, uh, that's the craziest statement I've ever heard. This is LA. There's like a, a gajillion great sound people here. 
And then the other producer said, yeah, but none of them would work for that rate. And I was just like, wait, what rate? And she told me the rate. And I was like, oh no, I'm the cheap guy. I don't want to be the cheap guy. Oh. At the time, I didn't know. I was making way more than I was making recording bands. And so I was happy to take that rate. But moving to LA, I realized, well, not only should I have not taken that rate, but now I actually know a lot more production sound mixers on the East Coast than I did back then. Again, the production sound community is very small and very tight. So, you know, we talk to each other from across the country because we're all working for the same people. So we know what's a good rate and what we should be charging and, and you know, when to hold the line, so to speak. So culturally, yeah, it was, it was different in that there's a lot of assumptions that people make about small markets, you know, what they can get away with, what they can't get away with. And, and to, to some degree that's, it's reasonable, right? It's, it's cheaper to live in South Carolina than it is to live in LA, but gear costs the same. And I would make the argument that because there's not a lot of people doing it, it's a more specialized skill to have and you should actually be charging more for it. Yeah. And I feel like on the music side of things, everybody is racing to the bottom, right? Everyone's competing to get the business because everybody's in the business now. All the bands that you used to record are now recording themselves or recording their friends and everyone's just trying to stay competitive. And what that means is they're trying to stay cheap. It's not a hard argument to make in production sound as well, but it's, it's the wrong argument. You know, one of the things about being on set is picture is king. That's that's the way that they describe it, right? Everybody on set is working to make the picture look great, except sound. They're the only department, well, besides catering, they're the only department that is worried about how it sounds. So on a set that has 30 people, 27 of those people are all working together to make it look good. And they're all on walkies, they're all communicating They're all together. And then you've got three guys whose job is to make it sound good. And they're in everyone's way, in every possible way they could be. Your boom is creating shadow. The lavalier is sticking out. Or the wardrobe is noisy, so now we're complaining to wardrobe that they need to fix wardrobe because they they made it almost impossible to get a clean dialogue track. So we're we're basically the combatants on on set. And and it's not because we are combative, but it's because we're trying to get the best we can get out of the dialogue or ambience or whatever it is that we're trying to capture. And everyone just looks at us like, wait, why why are you here? Why are yeah. why are you even here? Do we even need this? You know? Did you and your wife have some savings or did you just come out cold? So here's the story. It's it's kind of funny. My my wife and I, we've we've talked about moving to California a number of times and it's 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 never quite worked out. We've never quite had the passion to do it, you know. And I think passion's the right word because I mean I mean, when you hear what we ended up doing, there's no other reason to do it. Uh essentially, um <laughs> My wife and I were just sitting there watching Secret Life of Walter Mitty. And my wife pauses it in the middle and just goes, why don't we just finally move where you can actually do what you want to do for a living, you know, instead of us just being here trying to get by. And I was just like, uh, is, is that an option? Can I do that? Because if you think so, then I'm going to book a flight now to California. I'm going to go figure it out. And so two weeks later, I booked a flight and flew to California and after coming out here twice, we put our house on the market and that was like October. We got a contract in December and closed on February 10th of 2015, packed up a truck and drove to California. 
And so here we are with whatever we have left after paying the house off and whatever other debts we had at the time. And we had enough for maybe three months. So I had three months to get it figured out. Like I said, you know, we got here and as soon as we got here, we found a place and I found, and I found work. And it was only a day here, two days there, a week of whatever there. I mean, it was just the grind and I just hit it immediately. It took a while. It wasn't, oh, we're making it. This is working. It was like, well, we made it that month. <laughs> Let's see if we can make it another month, you know, and, and not every month we did. You know, there were definitely months where there was no work and I didn't know what we were going to do. So, you know, there, there was that, those times where you're, you know, you're paying your car insurance with your credit card, you know, only to have to pay your credit card bill late. And that's just, that was the reality that, that we were in. And, um, every year has gotten better in huge increments. It wasn't like, well, that's a little better. I mean, it was drastic. So the first year was a lot of me figuring it out, figuring out, okay, what, you know, what are, what is my commute going to be like? Where am I going to have the biggest problems when I book work? When do I have to leave or how do I, what's the best way to get here and there? And, and am I charging enough? And could I charge more? Like, what is it, what piece of gear do I need to buy that's going to generate more income? You know, cause I know on the show, obviously we, you know, we talk about buying gear and, and does you buy it you know, for gear luster because it's practical, right? Like, is it something we need? And, and there is a hard balance, you know, even in, in my world, you know, of what would make my life easier versus what can I charge more for? Believe it or not, you know, it's one of those things where client headphones <laughs> are, was, was an important decision for me to invest in a way for the clients to hear because A, it's an extra rental fee that I can, that I can tack on. Plus it, makes my client feel more important, you know, and it makes them want me to come back. If I, you know, give them a solution that works or a solution that makes them happy, that's investing more in my business than say a fancier boom microphone or a fancier wireless setup. Uh, even though I can charge more money for those things, you know, it, it's like the priority of the client versus me. That's, I like that approach of looking at it from the client's perspective yeah. Make them happy, charge them a little more for rental fees. See, that's another thing is that uh, that I think a lot of people who don't do production sound don't realize is that you not only charge for your time, you charge for the gear. Yeah. I've learned so much about business or the, the practicalities of running a business and doing production sound. And, and it's one of those things where it's really no different than owning a studio, right? When you own a studio, you have to take into consideration overhead, right? Like first you have to find a place that's big enough, you know, and then you have to treat it. Then you have to put a bunch of gear in it. And at the end of the day, your p- client is paying for the studio, right? They're paying for studio time. And on top of the studio time, you charge for the engineer, right? And maybe that practice is less popular than it used to be. Yeah. But you know, if you go to, if you go to East West, you're going to pay for the room, but then you're paying for an engineer, you know, it's a separate fee. And then you're probably paying your engineer another fee to come in because they're your engineer or your producer or your whatever. And so you've got these labor costs on top of your studio cost. The studio gets their fee, the labor people get their fee. In production, it's the same thing. I show up, I have a cost. As, as the 
sound mixer. I have a labor rate. The gear has a rental. So even though they could rent the gear from a rental house, they could rent it from me. To me, that's my mobile studio. That's how I think of it. I'm bringing a studio to your location and it has preamps and it has microphones and it has output and headphone solutions. And it has all these little things that your production needs. And I provide that service through gear and through expertise. So it's really the same thing. But just like a studio where you buy, let's say you upgrade your preamp, maybe you can charge a little more per day. But if you buy 20 different or if you buy 10 different preamps and you're using one at the time, you just get to pick which one you want. You're not charging for all the options that you're giving your client. You know, you're not charging more because you have three drum kits in the corner. You're just charging the rate, you know, and that rate doesn't really go up incrementally if you add another drum kit or if you add another microphone or if you add another set of headphones. But you need headphones and you need mic stands and you need to make sure that it's treated a certain way so that it it sounds good when you record. I had to learn how to think, okay, if I get client headphones, cool, I get to charge more for that. If I upgrade my wireless I'm not really charging more. I might have better results, but I'm not charging more for it. So I have to now decide what do I need to purchase next, you know, to make me a more viable option for my clients and to provide a better service. I did very quickly raise my rates. As soon as I figured out what normal meant, then I had leverage. I approached people with this, hey, I'm new in town and I can I can give you this rate. And so I understood what they would normally pay and then what I could offer it. And I knew that I was still above what is cheap, if that makes sense. So I knew enough to know I don't look cheap. You know, I look like I'm giving them a deal. Here's my experience, but I'm going to give you a deal because I'm new in town. The following year, I send an email that says, hey, I just want to let you know I'm raising my rates to this much, you know, because it's I'm not new anymore. And maybe it wasn't a drastic increase, but it was enough and it was still a good idea or still still a good idea for them. You know, like, oh, okay, well, yeah, no, that's totally great. You've been great. Thank you. Of course, we'll do that because it's still a better deal. And so by year, year three, well, now I'm working at a much higher level. And so for the people that are, that were paying me really low budgets, I really don't work with them as much. You know, they were, it was great for me to get that experience and to kind of like cut my teeth in, in the city with certain people. But it was, it was easier for me to, uh, climb up the ladder in the sense of trying new things, trying different tactics, trying to develop my my business and the way that I ran it, the the gear that I purchased, and even now I'm I'm reevaluating the gear that I purchased two years ago, thinking this is going to be the thing. This is going to be the thing that gets me the the gig or gets me a better response from the client. And then I kind of realize, you know what, my clients don't care. They don't care about this thing. And there's a couple better options out there for me. So I'm going to sell this piece of gear and buy a different piece of gear. And that's stuff I would have never known. And had I been in the bubble, you know, the bubble of the East Coast where I was one of two options in town, you know, or in the state, I would have never learned those things or developed those those tactics or whatever. Shout out to our friends over at Roswell Pro Audio who helped make the Working Class Audio podcast possible. Recently had the pleasure of using their Mini K47 mic, which is priced at $299 on a Marshall cabinet. And I got to tell you, it sounded absolutely amazing. And that's going to be part of my setup from here on out. So if you want to check it out, go over to roswellproaudio.com. And they do offer free shipping, but if you really want to help our cause with them, 
Make sure on the checkout when you're buying a mic that you include the code WCA free ship. And that way they know that you came from us and you heard about Roswell Pro Audio from Working Class Audio. So there it is. Check it out. RoswellProAudio.com. What are some of the hardest lessons you had to learn when you got started and, and once you were up and running? What are some kind of aha, oh, geez, I got to learn that lesson moment? I think one of your earlier shows, I heard you ask somebody what was like your biggest, you know, the biggest lesson you learned. And when you asked that person, I instantly thought of this story. I was working, this was a low budget production. Uh, at the time, my gear was was relatively minimal. I thought everything went fine the whole day. And a couple of days later, somebody called me and said, we're missing 20 minutes of audio. Somehow the file stopped in the, in the middle of the set or the, the take. And the last 20 minutes just isn't there. In hindsight, I think what happened is somebody walked into the middle of the frame and everyone stopped. And I think I hit stop, but then they didn't hit stop. They just kept rolling and no one said, roll. I have this program muscle memory. If, if I don't hear roll, I don't hit record. And if I don't hear cut, I don't hit cut. Like it's just a natural thing. And so I think no one hit, no one said roll because these guys, they didn't really follow protocol very well. And so they just didn't say roll and I never hit record again. And then it just, the next time they said roll, which was the next take, I hit roll. All that to say, I learned (laughs) that I've got to just read the room. When you're working on productions of different sorts, some people are on it and everyone's following protocol and everyone is is doing the job they're supposed to do. And sometimes it is total chaos and people are doing more than one job or they don't really know how to do their job and they're just kind of doing the best they can. And you've got to kind of always be above the bar. You've always got to be ready to do what you know needs to do needs to happen, whether they're asking for it or not. That was a great lesson for me to learn very quickly because as I got on many different sets, you kind of realize you just got to be ready for everything all the time. And and that day was, you know, that was the day I learned that. The yeah. equipment for production sound is so expensive. It's ridiculous. Have you made peace with that in some way in that you figure out like, well, I can skimp out here by this less expensive thing, or are there things you just absolutely cannot skimp on? There's things that you definitely can't skimp on. And it is quite frustrating because sometimes the difference is so subtle that you're just like, why is the price difference so drastic? For instance, a common common piece of gear is a uh, entry level piece of gear is a Sennheiser G3 wireless set designed for the ENG market, which for those that don't know is is electronic news gathering, right? And so the idea is you've got a camera person with this wireless receiver attached to their camera, and you've got a person standing in front of the camera like two feet. <laughs> like They're like right there. So they just need that, that short distance wireless device, but the distance isn't that great. And I think real numbers, let's say it's a thousand bucks. We'll call it a thousand dollars. The next step up is like three grand for one channel. Wow. Well, like Electrosonics is a popular model. That would That's probably the industry standard is Electrosonics. And you can get drastically better results between those. So it's justifiable, right? For, sure. You, you mean drastic results be, mean the distance? The distance, yes. And reliability and all that sort of thing. So uh, just to give some sort of like technical difference, a, a G3 has a 
uh, 30 milliwatt, you know, range, whereas Lecture has 250, you know, so it's a drastic difference in power and size and all that sort of stuff. There's, there's a lot of added benefits. So the, the increase is quite good, you know? And so I would say that's worth the money. Sometimes there are other brands that I won't mention. It's the same money as the electrosonic stuff and the range isn't incrementally better on, on paper. You could argue that's that the specs are better, but in the real world, you can see that you're not getting a huge advantage by buying certain products. But what's even more frustrating to me is the things that you need that are more practical, like a cart or a bag or some way to carry your gear or power your gear that is mind-numbingly expensive. You know, like let's say you have a lavalier microphone, which is really small because you have to hide it. And then they make these cool little plastic things to hide them in that help. But those things are like 30 bucks a a piece and they break in a day, you know? So it's like, you know, so you spend $100 on something that's going to break a week from now. In, In the right circumstances, you can bill the client for that. That's an option, which is great if you can bill the client for that. But not everybody negotiates properly and gets what they call expendables. But even right now, I'm building a custom cart for my console. And the cart itself costs a ton of money, but even just filling it with rack drawers and rack rail and a handle, you know, I mean, it's like, I want to mount my laptop somewhere on the cart. It's going to be 150 bucks for a little mount, you know? So everything adds up so quickly. It is not uncommon to show up to set with a hundred thousand dollars worth of gear for a, wow. for a small, a small production. It's just, it's just adds up that quickly. Obviously you need insurance for that. Yep. So you have to have insurance, you have to have transportation, you have to account for maintenance, batteries. <laughs> it's just so much stuff. So tell me about the pivotal point for you where audio became important enough to do as a job. I'm a drummer. I've played music since I was 11 or 12 years old. Grew up in a family that was very musical. When I was in high school, some buddies of mine were recording a record at a friend's studio. And the first time I walked in was like, oh my gosh, this is it. This is what I want to do. And before that, my parents were like, you're going to college, you know? So I was like, well, I could, I guess I could go and get a degree in drums. Well, no, because then I'll just end up teaching. (laughs) I don't want to teach drums. That just seems boring. Uh, no offense to anyone that teaches drums. I just would be bored. Then I was like, well, I'll just go into broadcasting. I'll be a, like a radio announcer. You know, I'll just sit there and talk on the radio. Like those were the only two options I could think of. And then walking into the studio, it was very clear that this is what I wanted to do. Eventually I did go to school for recording. I went to Full Sail in Orlando, Florida, and it was a great experience. And then graduated and immediately, this was 2001, so the market was completely changing. It went from tape to Pro Tools. Like it was like I walked into school and everybody was on, you know, using tape machines and DAT machines and all that. I walked out of school and everybody was using Pro Tools. And then like I was like, am I even gonna find a job? <laughs> like is this even a career anymore? But I didn't know what else to do. I had nothing else to do. You know, I still loved music. I still loved working with bands. I still loved all of it. I loved it, you know, and I still do. And so I just kept doing it. I just, I kept doing what I knew to do, and I've just been trying to make it work ever since. 
Hey, I want to give a shout out to our friends over at Audio-Technica. They help make the working class audio podcast possible. You can find them at audio-technica.com. They, of course, offer headphones, microphones, turntables, turntable cartridges, as well as many accessories that you might need, like headphone replacement cables and headphone pads. The great thing is, is there's no hesitation required. If you see something you like, you can buy it right there on the website. So check them out, audio-technica.com. And thanks for supporting our friends at AT. When did you get married? What year? I got married in 2005. So I got married in 2005, had children in December of 2006. And not only did I have uh, one kid, I had two. I had twins. So we doubled our family instantly. You know, this is the reality. You know, it's like, it's one thing when when you're single and you're working with bands and you're broke all the time and you're trying to make it and you could live anywhere. It's another thing when you're married and you're trying to explain how this is all going to work out, you know. And then it's quite <laughs> another thing altogether when you have two babies and you're living, like, I think when the boys were born, shortly after that, I was doing an internship at a studio in Atlanta, 60 hours a week for free and working 40 hours a week for, for in a cafe. So I'm, I'm constantly working, trying to make it with these two kids. And my wife isn't working, you know, she's got two two babies. You shouldn't, you know, there's no options. I think I just learned really early on to hustle. You know, it was just like, if you're going to make it, you're going to work hard to do it. You know, giving up has never been an option. And people talk to me now, uh, you know, I meet people out here all the time and LA is an interesting place. You meet really successful people and you meet people that what I call have a touch of success, you know, where they've done one thing that was cool and, and they've been trying to do it again ever since. And I meet people all the time that are just confused when they go, wait, you're, you're living in LA, your wife doesn't work and your kids are homeschooled. Like, what is, how in the world do you do that? I was like, I don't have any other options. Like if I don't do it, there's nothing. I'm not going to go and learn how to weld or go back to college or like come up with some new career. Like I'm doing it, you know, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to make it, make it happen. And I think that motivation makes a big difference than the person who doesn't really have much to do, you know, like they're, they're fine sitting on the couch for two weeks waiting for the next thing. You know, like if I have a day off, I'm out looking for more work. I tell people I, I, I network for a living and occasionally I go to set, you know, like <laughs> I'm out there, you know, like I'm going to lunch with people. I'm learning about some new piece of gear. I'm going to some event. I'm, I'm hustling, you know. You know, there are influences, negative and positive. Yeah. And when I, and I'm talking about people. So mm-hmm. you can meet some people that are really encouraging and really kind of um, trying to think outside the box. Yeah. And, and move, move, move the ball forward, if you'll excuse my analogy. Right. Yep. And then there are those who just kind of accept things as they are. Yeah. And just say, well, it's, it's you know, they, they like to think in, in practical terms. And I, and I can respect that way of thinking as well. But, um, what, how do you handle those that you think their influence pulls you down and doesn't help, help the process of, of moving forward for themselves or for you? I know we've kind of loosely touched on this. The, the sound mixers community in LA is amazing. Absolutely one of a kind. It is, it's a great community of people. And in that community of people, you have such a diverse group of experience 
You've got guys that are, they've been in the, the union for 40 years. You know, they're retired and still making hit movies. They're just very sought after. They're very good at what they do. And I would say some of those guys do the thing they've been doing. They just keep doing it. And if you asked them how to do it, they would tell you how they do it. And that's the way to do it. And there's no other way. Some of those guys, I think what makes them cool is their ability to adapt and do something different. And I think one of the cool things about location sound in general is that there are so many ways to do it. You know, there is no hard rule that says this always works because it doesn't. Someone will come up with a way to get to, to, to make your job harder. You know, so you've always got to find a way to, to adapt. But that being said, there are there are people that are, um, look, this is the, the gear you need to buy. And this is, you know, this is the way you need to do this, this and this. And this is just the way it is. And if you can't keep up with that or you can't work that way, you'll never work in this town. And then there are people doing it not that way, working plenty. And I think this is something that I don't think a lot of people are good at, but I try to take it all in and really think about that kind of stuff. I listen, you know, I had a guy criticize me pretty good for not having the right gear or the right kind of gear or, or, you know, he didn't think I, you know, really had what I needed to, to get a job done because it's not what he had. And I think at first I was really offended but then I thought about it and I thought, you know, I think this guy's just learned a lot of lessons and he was just trying to like help me take a shortcut. And maybe he didn't. Maybe maybe he really was just taking a shot at me. But more than more than likely he really had something to say. You know, it's always important to to be ready for anything and you got to have the right tools for the job. If I was like putting the twist on it, like if I was just trying to reword it so I could be so it was useful to me instead of me just getting upset, you know. Because there, there's a lot of people out here that will that will say things to to hurt you or to bring you down or whatever. I would say for me, I just try to take it in and just and and use what I can use. And if it's not useful, I just toss it to the side and don't worry about it. And for those people, then I just don't put a lot of time into those people. There's so many people out here, and everyone has an opinion, and everybody has a way to do it. It is hard sometimes to to figure out whose advice you should take, you know, and and who's help you, you should, you know, receive or whatever, or, or who you should be spending time with, you know? And the, yeah. the good thing is that there are tons of great people out here that are so nice and willing to help. It's helped me so much. Like, you know, I know that you've, you've asked me about this journey and, and honestly, it's, it, it's not just me hitting the road and hustling. It, it is everyone that I've met and that has encouraged me or pointed me in the right direction or pulled me aside and said, Hey, that's not it. <laughs> you know, cause sometimes people have saved me that way. They've pulled me aside and said, Hey man, I just want to let you know that you can't X, Y, Z, or you can't talk to so-and-so you really need to talk to this person. And it wasn't just don't ever do that again. It was don't do that, do this instead. And so it wasn't like they left me with this, like, Oh, well, I just screwed up. Oh, well, you know, it's backed up with a don't do that. But this is the way to do it. You know, this is how you should go about this process and this is what you should do. So, I mean, that's, that's the bonus is that I'm not doing this alone. You know what I mean? Like I'm not doing this in an isolated, you know, bubble. Like I'm doing this with the help of people in my community, in my industry that are investing in me just as much as I'm investing in them. It's nice when people offer solutions along with their criticism. That's actually valuable. Well, you know who gave me really good advice? Who? Matt Boudreaux. 
I'm, oh, I met that guy. I know that guy. <laughs> no, I mean we we had that discussion at Nam. Like when we talked, I I remember just being like, Matt, this is what I'm doing, and I don't know if it's the right direction. And we just talked, you know, and and you you basically said, just keep doing it, just keep doing it, and see what happens. And I did, and great things happened. I've done some cool stuff, dude. I can't tell you how weird it is sometimes to be on set or to be on a stage or to be on whatever it is I'm working on and go, Oh my gosh, did I just like, did I just do that? You know, like I really don't think I would have had the success that I've had, had I just kept doing what I've always done. If I didn't, right. if I wasn't willing to adapt, if I wasn't willing to shift my focus, I wouldn't be able to look back and be like, I totally worked with this awesome person that I've, you know, that I'm a fan of, like I'm an actual yeah. fan of, you know, I think it's cool that I'm able to make a living and support my family and and do these things. I wouldn't say that I'm like highly successful, but I'm more successful than I've ever been. Um, and I get to look back and say, I've worked with all these great people that I never thought I'd work with. So thanks. Thanks for the advice. Well, I th- <laughs> thank you for pointing that out. I Sometimes I say some stuff and who knows if it's the right advice, but yeah. Um, you know, let me, let me paint a picture for you. Yeah. Let's say you're taking a journey through a mountain range and you're on a well-traveled road and that well-traveled road comes to an end and weeds and a path that doesn't look like anybody's been down it. There are those who will stop and go, well, I guess that's the end of the road. And they'll either turn back or they'll stop and stagnate. And then there are those that, you know, decide... Well, okay, I don't see a clear path, but I'm going to forge a new path and I'm going to make it over the mountain range. And it seems that had you been the first kind of person when you came out to Los Angeles and ran into a couple roadblocks, you'd probably be back in South Carolina right now. Yeah. But you're not. So you forged ahead and made it through the mountain range. Is that some mystical shit or what? <laughs> no, it's 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 a beautiful it's a beautiful analogy. I mean, that's the thing. It's 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 like there's been so many times in my life where I've gone, I don't know if this is the right path for me. I don't know if this is the right direction. And it, not because something bad is happening. You know, when I was when I was in school, one of the, the things that that I really enjoyed was the fact that I had a well-rounded introduction to to all things recording. And some of my favorite classes were were post sound. We didn't spend a lot of time on location sound, but the, you know, the, with post, you deal with all the, all the backside of production. And I just thought it was so cool. And at the time, you know, I was, you know, 20, 21 at the time, I was just like, man, that was so much fun. I'll probably never do that because, you know, rock and roll, right. You know, it's just like, why would I ever not be doing music? But then when those opportunities started coming up in my late twenties and people were like, Hey, do you want to do sound effects for this video I made or this commercial I did, or do you want to fix this really bad audio we recorded? <laughs> Cause we're film people and we don't know anything about sound, you know, and those opportunities started coming up. I was like, sure. Yeah. That sounds like fun. You know, I haven't done that in a while. It'd be fun to do it. Just saying yes was very, was very good for me. You know, just saying yes to new things and something different. That's the thing is like how that progressed. I, I did not think I was making a career shift back then. Next thing I know, I'm in LA and I'm working on a film, you know, or I'm working on a commercial or, you know, hanging out with one of my favorite comedians. You know what I mean? It's just like, this is crazy. I mean, since we talked that first time, I mean, I did not think 
in the short amount of time that I've been here that I'd be doing as well as I am and working with the clients that I'm working with and and my my peers as well. I mean, I can't say enough about the people in the LA Sound Mixer community. I wish I had that in the music community. What motivates you to get up and do this every day? I really like doing it. I don't know if you've ever had an office job, <laughs> but I've had office jobs, you know, and uh, I just, I like being able to work for myself and to run my own business and and have cool experiences doing it. You know, I like being able yeah. to, to, to show up and say, well, today I'm working with this high profile celebrity and in real life, they're cool <laughs> and in, or, or they're not cool. And I'm glad I met yeah. them, you know, or, you know, today I'm looking over the coast of Malibu and tomorrow I'm in the mountains and like, it's just different every day. I like yeah. being creative and being in a, in an environment where people are being creative and working together. You know, it was the fa- my mm-hmm. favorite part about working in the studio was the creativity of people coming together and making something cool. Well, it's way better than an office job. That's for sure. <laughs> yes. Well, David, it's been great to have you on, man. Absolutely, um, Matt. Thank you so I, much. It's it's really been special to literally watch your Facebook posts as you do these gigs. Yeah. And I, every time I just think, look at David go, man. This is awesome. And uh, so it's you. great to see wow. see you press forward. And I'm really happy to know you. So thanks for being on the man, show. I'm happy to be your friend, Matt. Right on. Yeah. All right. Well, you take care. You too, buddy. We'll see you next time. David Cook here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks for being with me today. Want to encourage you to stop by our sponsors' websites. They do help make the Working Class Audio Podcast possible. I'm talking about the License Lab, Gearsluts.com, Roswell Pro Audio, Universal Audio, and Audio Technica. And of course, we got to thank Mr. Cliff Truesdale and Mr. Chuck Smith for their efforts. And I want to thank you for listening week after week. Please spread the word, stop by the website, like us on social media. And uh, until next time, my friends, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.